So today's uh, Grand Round speaker is Dr. Sydney Hartman, a, a native of Eastern Massachusetts. Um, she uh, received her undergraduate degree from Cornell University and um, her medical degree at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, where she was an Alpha o Omega Alpha and Gold Humanism graduate, uh, both. She, during that time, had already uh, begun working uh, with a eating disorder optional enrichment elective that she was the leader of and created. She was noted to receive the Marianne Felice Adolescent Health Award, awarded to the medical student at UMass Medical School who exhibits a passion for knowledge of adolescent medicine. See a theme already? She, um, she very well could have spoken to us about her work on um, uh, um, implants, uh, long-acting reproductive uh, contraceptive, or long-acting, what does LARC stand for, Kathy? <laughs> So she she had a poster that we presented the she had a poster that we thank you. So we had a poster we presented on her behalf at the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine national meeting. She could have spoken to us about her work developing a pathway for inpatient eating disorders here on the inpatient unit, and all along the theme of adolescent health. But instead, is going to teach us about. Um, incarceration and youth in the United States. She will be our chief resident next year, so we will continue. <laughs> in advance of finding her way on to Adolescent Medicine Fellowship, we are sure. So, Sydney, take it away. All right. Can everyone hear me? We good? All right. Thank you, Dr. Loud. So as most of you guys know, I'm Sydney, and today I'm going to be talking about youth incarceration in the United States. This photograph was taken by artist Richard Ross, and it's a part of a series entitled Juvenile Injustice. His photos are extremely powerful, and I'll be using them throughout my talk to give a glimpse at what life is like for these children behind bars. I have no conflicts to disclose. So as most of you know, or now you know from Dr. Loud, adolescent medicine is near and dear to my heart and I have a strong interest in taking care of the most marginalized populations. So today, I'm going to take you on a journey to learn more about one of these populations. We will learn about the judicial process for minors in this country, look at the makeup of our youth prisons, and examine why extreme disparities exist. We will discuss the disturbing trends of abuse and work to figure out why the system fails in such a big way. We will then take a more positive turn and talk about some amazing alternatives to incarceration and future directions for these youth. I'll start with a quote. The child who must be brought into court should, of course, be made to know that he is face-to-face -face with the power of the state, but he should at the same time, and more emphatically, be made to feel that he is the object of its care and solicitude. That was said by Judge Julian Mack in 1909, who was one of the first judges to ever preside over the nation's first juvenile court in Cook County, Illinois. To the left is a photograph that's in stark contrast to this quote. It's an image of the storage room for restraints at a youth detention facility. This contrast is pervasive throughout the juvenile justice system. <clears throat> so let's talk a little bit about the history of the juvenile justice system in America. The goals of these courts uh, were initially to rehabilitate with the best interests of the child in mind. And the first juvenile court was established in Chicago in 1899. In the 19th century, However, juveniles were subject to the same punishments as adults, including death, and decisions were often made without a fair trial. It really wasn't until the 1960s when a few pivotal cases pushed the juvenile justice system to give youth similar rights as adults when it came to trials, such as due process, meaning a fair and impartial trial, and psychiatric hospitalization instead of detention when necessary. Things changed again in the late uh, 1980s and early 1990s when there was a perceived increase in juvenile crime and more youth than ever before were tried as adults. Youth overall experienced less protection under the law during this tough on crime period of time. Since that time, incarceration rates have declined and changes to policy have been made largely at the state level. Now let's discuss age. When we refer to juveniles, we talk about kids up to age 18, but some states extend their authority to individuals over 18 depending on the situation. It was William Blackstone who said, the malice supplies the age. What he meant by this was that if a child chose to commit a crime that was particularly heinous, then he or she no longer deserved to be viewed as a child who did not know right from wrong. 
This underlies the concept of youth being tried as adults, which happens today in America, as most of you probably know. Children as young as seven can be charged as adults in 22 different states. Now a few definitions about types of offenses that youth can be charged with. A status offense is an offense that wouldn't be punishable under the law if it was committed by an adult. So things like underage drinking, truancy, running away, or curfew violation. And delinquency offenses are things that are definitely illegal, like violent crime or property crime, things like burglary. Now we'll discuss the possible outcomes of the justice system for youth. Keep in mind that there's, the specific procedure really varies by state, and there's no set timeline for this process. So we could be talking weeks to months or even longer for some kids. After a youth is arrested or referred to court by parents or school officials, the case is either taken up by the court or it is determined that the child will be released or diverted. I'll use the word diversion a lot in this talk. This refers to the process of channeling a child away from the justice system and can happen at any point in the process. It involves participating in a community program such as counseling, community service, restitution, or even an academic program. And it's used when the decision is made that being processed in the system will be more harmful than beneficial or when the offense was relatively minor. The next big decision point is intake. And that's where it's decided whether a child's case will be, again, diverted, dismissed, or go on to formal judicial processing. Some youth are ordered to be detained while awaiting processing if they're determined to be unsafe at home or in the public. The entity performing intake varies by state, and it can include anyone from a probation officer to an official intake center to the court system, among others. Probation supervision is the most common result of this pathway, and it's frequently accompanied by other court-imposed sanctions, such as community service, restitution, or participation in treatment services. Placement in a secure correctional facility is the most restrictive outcome that can be decided for a youth. The individual characteristics of these facilities vary dramatically. In an average year, about 20% of the cases referred to a juvenile court intake officer are dismissed, and another 25% or so are handled informally, which means it doesn't go on the child's record. The remaining cases go through formal proceedings. This map identifies approximately 80 facilities in the US that were established more than 100 years ago or have 100 beds or more. These youth prisons are primarily state-run facilities that provide long-term post-judgment confinement. In some states, there are privately run facilities as well. The blue points are facilities with only males, the pink with only females, and the purple are co-ed. While it certainly looks like there are a lot of facilities in the country, if you take a closer look out here west and in the middle of the country, children often have to travel across the state when they're incarcerated. This can have a tremendous impact on these youth, many of whom are far away from home for the first time, and their families who may lack the ability to visit. We'll focus in a little bit now on New Hampshire and Vermont. So in Colchester, Vermont, we have the Woodside Juvenile Rehabilitation Center. This is for kids aged 10 to 17 and has 16 beds total. And further south, in Manchester, we have the John H. Sununu Youth Services Center. This is for kids aged 13 to 17. When it was first built, it had a total of 144 beds, but these numbers have recently decreased, and there's not currently published data about the exact number of beds that they're using right now. It's got two sections to it. The first is the Detention Services Unit, which has 24 beds, is co-ed, and for anyone awaiting disposition by the courts or those wanted in other states. It usually has less than a 48-hour stay. The other section is the Youth Services Center, with an average length of stay of 8 to 12 months and has school and group sessions. <clears throat> Let's talk national numbers now. These numbers are from 2015, which is our most up-to-date information. Every year in the United States, 2 million juveniles are arrested and 60,000 are detained. On any given day, 40,000 youth remain in a correctional facility. 75% of these kids are incarcerated for nonviolent crimes, things like drug use, running away, or truancy. And the median length of stay is 65 days for both short and long-term facilities. When we look at demographics, we see that the majority of inmates are male. However, female numbers are increasing. And males and females tend to be arrested for different types of crime. Females have higher rates of running away, prostitution, and vice offenses, which are things like drug and alcohol use. Males have higher rates in all other categories, including violent crime. 
The highest rates of juvenile crime occur in middle adolescence, and there are big racial disparities with the most serious crimes, like murder, robbery, and assault. And there are also disparities seen depending on a youth's sexual orientation or identity. <coughs> Let's examine a little more closely the increase in female inmates and the reasons underlying this trend. Nationally, females accounted for 15% of juvenile offenders in residential placement in 2015. In the last 20 years, arrests for females increased 45%, and court caseloads and detention both increased 40%. The inequities are most apparent amongst non-white females and LGBTQ females. This graph illustrates the increase in female numbers from 1992, shown in green on the left, on the left bars, and uh, up to 2012 and 2013, which is shown in blue, with respect to arrests, court caseloads, numbers detained, probation, and placement. Each one of these categories saw significant increases, which is a curious trend. When we look at the types of crimes that females commit, we see that the majority of these are nonviolent. A study done in 2012 revealed that girls represented 76% of arrests for prostitution, 42% of arrests for larceny, 40% of arrests for liquor law violations, 35% of arrests for disorderly conduct, and 29% of arrests for curfew violations. Evidence has emerged that when females are arrested for violent crimes like assault and domestic offenses, these are likely related to their experience with violence and abuse in their homes. So why are arrest and detention rates for female youth increasing? First of all, these are often described as efforts to protect these girls, and systemic sexism is a problem. One study of girls on probation in Arizona found that probation officers often perceived girls as manipulative, whiny, promiscuous, and not truthful. There's also the issue of underlying mental health disorders. There are higher percentages of girls than boys in juvenile facilities who report an above average number of mental or emotional problems and traumatic experiences. 42% of girls versus 22% of boys report past physical abuse. 44% of girls versus 19% of boys report past suicide attempts. And 35% of girls versus 8% of boys report past sexual abuse. We have come to find that violence and abuse at home, especially sexual abuse, are strong predictors of juvenile justice involvement in girls. And we can't talk about female inmates without addressing the concept of girls' courts. These are courts that process only females. Usually a single judge hears and follows all of the female cases, and they may oversee regular group meetings at which these females report their progress, sometimes with their peers or with their families in attendance. In theory, these were initiated to be protective, but there have been legitimate concerns that they may net widen or bring girls into the system for minor offenses, which otherwise might not have led to court involvement in the first place. There is also concern that these courts increase the use of detention and actually extend the time it takes to process a case. Girls' courts also isolate girls' services within the court system rather than in the community, potentially making reentry more difficult because, uh, because those services aren't readily available. Mixed results uh, have happened in states that use this type of system. We'll shift gears just a little bit now. This quote is from Michelle Alexander, who wrote The New Jim Crow, which is a groundbreaking book outlining the systemic racism in our country that functions to marginalize and oppress individuals of color using the justice system. She writes, a fundamental reason that the failed youth prison model has persisted for 170 years is that the youth, families, and communities most affected are seen as others, not as ours. Let's examine the racial disparities present in the juvenile justice system. This map shows rates of incarceration for youth of color compared with white youth. States that are dark brown are states where youth of color are detained at up to a 13 times higher rate than white youth. In other words, these are states that have the highest gap between incarceration of youth of color compared to white youth. If you take a closer look, our very own state is one of them. We've come to find that minority youth are significantly overrepresented in the juvenile justice system, despite the fact that they commit roughly the same level of crime as white youth. African-American youth are five times more likely to be incarcerated than white youth, Native American youth are three times more likely, and Latino youth are twice as likely to be incarcerated than white youth. In some individual states, this disparity is profoundly higher. These differences hold true at nearly every part of the justice process. For example, 
Research has shown that probation officers may attribute causes of crimes committed by black youth more often to internal deficits, like personality flaws, while they attribute external deficits, like coming from a broken home, more frequently to white youth. Youth of color are more likely to be stopped and frisked and are also tried as adults in numbers disproportionate to that of white youth. When we focus in a little bit more on our state, the circle on the right over there shows the racial makeup of the youth of New Hampshire, the general population. As you can see, New Hampshire's youth is 89% white. When you compare with the circle on the left, you can see that while black and Latino youth together make up only 7% of the general youth population in New Hampshire, they comprise over 50% of the detained youth population in New Hampshire. Something is not right, clearly. Another concerning trend is the rate of incarceration of LGBTQ and gender nonconforming youth. These youth are also disproportionately represented in the juvenile justice system. This graph shows that while 7 to 9% of all youth in the general population identify as LGBTQ or gender nonconforming, 20% of all youth in the juvenile justice system identify as such. So why is this? These youth experience pervasive stigma from their families, communities, and schools. Studies have shown that these youth are more likely to get in trouble at school, to be stopped by police, and to be arrested. Because of these stigma, these youth are also more likely to become homeless and to fall victim to sex trafficking, sexual abuse, or trading sex for survival. Societal and family rejection also contribute to high rates of depression, suicidality, and substance use. These youth are also at high risk for abuse, both within and outside the system. A survey performed showed that the majority of youth who identify as LGBTQ or gender nonconforming who are incarcerated act in a gender-conforming way for fear of harassment or abuse. 12.5% of LGBTQ youth reported sexual victimization compared to 1.3% of heterosexual youth. This population faces discrimination at every step in the legal system as well. For example, in Texas, a law states that sexual contact with a minor under the age of 17 is a felony unless the parties involved are no more than three years apart in age, each party is over 14, the contact is consensual, and they are of the opposite sex. This law literally treats individuals differently if they are hetero versus homosexual. It's truly absurd. This quote is from the 17-year-old incarcerated female pictured to the right. I'm 17 years old. I've been here four months. I've been in this room four months. I'm wearing a smock to prevent me hurting myself. I can't have nothing, no books. I pass the time just sitting here, no friends. I talk to the girl across the way. They allow me to talk to her. I get out of here for an hour a day. I sit and look and stare at space when they let me out. While minority and LGBTQ, as well as gender nonconforming youth, are at high risk for abuse within the system, this is a pervasive problem for all incarcerated juveniles. In 2008, a study looking at conditions in correctional institutions revealed 13,000 allegations of abuse in facilities that housed 46,000 youth. And since the year 2000, systemic maltreatment has been do documented in the juvenile corrections facilities of 29 different states with substantial evidence of maltreatment in three other states. <coughs> to focus in a little bit on sexual and physical victimization, the Department of Justice performed the National Survey of Youth in Custody, the most recently in 2012, examining sexual abuse in these different facilities. Thirteen facilities in this survey were identified as high rate, meaning they had rates of victimization that were 35% higher than the national average, with Georgia and Ohio the states that had the highest rates. This survey also found that male inmates were more commonly victimized by staff, whereas female inmates were more likely to be sexually abused by their peers. Disturbingly, most victims of staff misconduct reported multiple incidents of sexual victimization, with one out of every five victims reporting 11 or more incidents. And with respect to physical violence, in the first nationally representative survey of confined youth published in 2010, 42% said that they were somewhat or very afraid of being physically attacked, and 45% said that staff use force against youth when they don't need to. Next, we'll examine the use of restraint and solitary confinement. Keep in mind that these regularly used tactics in any other situation outside of incarceration would be child abuse. It's unclear how often these restraint tactics and solitary confinement are used in this youth population, as this information is not regularly reported by facilities. 
There are reports of multiple facilities using what's called hog tying, which involves placing youth face down on the floor, handcuffing their arms behind their backs, shackling their legs together, and then pulling the arm and leg restraints together with a belt or metal chain, and pole tying, which involves shackling youth's arms and legs to a pole in a public place while other youth perform exercises around them. These tactics are both traumatizing for the individual as well as those bearing witness. And with respect to solitary confinement, a study by the ACLU came out in 2013 detailing the detrimental effects of solitary confinement on development, both uh, physical and psychological. Despite this, the studies have shown that most facilities heavily and arbitrarily overuse solitary confinement as punishment. To make matters worse, reports of detailed disturbing findings, such as confinement rooms with nothing but a hole in the floor as a toilet, dark rooms with no light meant for mentally unstable patients, and rooms where the temperature is turned down so low that inmates have to be treated for hypothermia. Locally, stories in the news have come out about sexual abuse at the Sununu Youth Services Center, with a former worker charged and undergoing trial currently. A story came out last year about the use of solitary confinement at Woodside. And these are just a few of the concerning trends we hear about at these institutions. I found this story from a report by the Anne E. Casey Foundation to be particularly representative. In 2001, the Phoenix New Times described the conditions inside an Arizona training school as follows. The boys in the Nova Cottage at Adobe Mountain School had been locked in their cells for six days. They had not been allowed to go to school or to the cafeteria or to chapel. No weekly phone calls. They had not showered or washed their clothes. Some had been without a mattress on their metal bed frames for weeks. Leftover food and garbage sat on the floors of their cells, and some boys banged on the doors demanding to use the bathroom. And these are just the stories that we know about. This is a map outlining the state facilities where maltreatment has been identified from the 1970s to present via evidence from federal investigations, class action lawsuits, or authoritative reports. The dark green states are those where there are concerns for ongoing abuses even after 2011. As you can see, many of the states remain dark green. As you know, kids are not little adults. However, in the justice system, sometimes children are treated as such. There are countless stories in the news about children being tried as adults. One in particular that is striking is the story of 11-year-old Jordan Brown, who was charged when he was 12 with two counts of homicide for the killing of his father's fiance and her unborn child in 2009. Jordan was from Pennsylvania, where there was no lower limit for the age that someone can be charged as an adult with criminal homicide. After much debate and a brief stay in an adult prison, the decision was made to process him in juvenile court, and he was sentenced in 2012 to a juvenile facility where he spent the next seven years. He was incredibly successful there, playing sports and completing school, and was subsequently released and went on to attend college. <clears throat> Clearly keeping him amongst his peers was more developmentally appropriate and allowed him to work toward an actual productive future. In the last 10 years or so, many states have enacted laws that require certain juvenile cases to be transferred to adult courts depending on the offense. These laws were created with the thought that they would help decrease juvenile crime. When youth are convicted in adult court, they commonly receive longer sentences than those sentenced in juvenile courts. Further, data has shown that these youth actually have higher recidivism rates compared to those incarcerated in youth centers. Juvenile, juveniles incarcerated in adult prisons compared with youth facilities have an eight-fold increase in suicide, a five-fold increase in being sexually assaulted, and a two-fold increase in the likelihood of being attacked with a weapon by other inmates or beaten by staff. And finally, with respect to the death penalty. In 2005, the Supreme Court ruled the age, age 18 to be the death penalty eligibility age, citing research that youth do not have the same cognitive maturity or sense of responsibility as adults. Anyone who has worked with children knows that frontal lobe maturity doesn't finalize until the mid-20s, which makes this law still extremely concerning. <clears throat> this quote is from Patrick McCarthy, who's a president of the A&E Casey Foundation, which is a private philanthropy based in Baltimore that makes grants for organizations to come up with solutions that make the, the future brighter for children in our country. He says, we need to admit that what we're doing doesn't work and is making the problem worse while costing billions of dollars and ruining thousands of lives. Now I'd like to really focus in on the downsides to the juvenile justice system and the way that it fails the individual, society, and economically as well. 
Many of its failings overlap in more than one of these categories. First, let's talk about how the system fails economically. This data is for the state of New Hampshire. It compares the annual cost of the most expensive confinement option per child, which is over $200,000, with the annual cost of public school education, which is just over $13,000. I think this gives a good demonstration of the absurdly high cost to fund a system that's broken. In all, the US spends over $5 billion per year on youth incarceration in the juvenile justice system. Incarceration also proves itself to be an inappropriate developmental choice for the individual child. Adult-style prisons that emphasize confinement and control don't have the essentials required for healthy development. Things like engaged adults, pro-social peer groups, opportunities for academic success, and activities that contribute to decision-making and critical thinking skills. We know that youth have less capacity for self-regulation in emotionally charged situations. Their sensitivity to environmental influences is heightened, and they have not yet learned to make decisions with a future orientation. Incarceration makes this worse. Many of these youth also come into incarceration with a positive trauma history. Solitary confinement, high rates of restraint use, and sexual and physical abuse serve to reinforce and contribute to their trauma backgrounds. And finally, as was stated in a paper from the executive session on community corrections, youth prisons communicate to young people constantly and in a variety of ways that they are dangerous, feared, worthless, and have no real future. The issue of education impacts the individual, society, and the economy as well. This figure shown is from a Department of Education study which showed that 43% of incarcerated youth who received remedial education services in detention did not return to school after release, and another 16% enrolled in school but dropped out after only five months. Another researcher found that most incarcerated ninth graders returned to school after incarceration, but within a year of re-enrolling, two-thirds to three-quarters withdraw or drop out of school. After four years, less than 15% of these incarcerated ninth graders had completed their secondary education. Youth who do not re-engage in education after incarceration face higher unemployment rates, poorer health, and even shorter lifespans, and significantly reduced earning potential. Further, dropouts are 3.5 times more likely than high school graduates to be arrested. The impact of incarceration on families also has effects on the individual, society as a whole, and the economy. Youth prisons break up families. Youth are often placed in prisons far away from anyone they know, if you think back to that map that we saw at the beginning, with limited access and visits. Families are often not included in the treatment plans for youth, and families actually end up paying for at least some of the daily cost of confinement, which is a huge burden on many families that are already living in poverty. Now let's focus in a little bit on healthcare for these patients. When we think about the healthcare needs for incarcerated youth, this can be a large burden economically, a significant problem for the individual, and comes to impact society as a whole as well. The priority healthcare needs that we think about when we think about juvenile justice are oral health, trauma-related injury, infectious illness, and reproductive health. These youth are also light, more likely to come into the system with worse underlying health to begin with. It's estimated that approximately 80% of detained youth lack a primary healthcare provider in their home communities. In the survey of youth in residential placement, two-thirds of youth reported having physical health care needs, including dental, vision or hearing, acute illness or injury. Also concerning is that studies of detained youth have found high rates of a traumatic brain injury when compared to the general population. <clears throat> These youth also have high rates of mental health and substance abuse problems, as well as traumatic experiences with rates that exceed those of the general adolescent population. Two-thirds of incarcerated boys and three-quarters of incarcerated girls meet criteria for at least one psychiatric diagnosis, with substance use, behavior disorders, and depression being the most prevalent. One study found that 52% of detained youth reported active suicidal ideation, and one-third reported prior suicide attempts. And detained youth commit suicide at a rate more than four times greater than the general adolescent population. Access to care for these patients is a big issue as well. There are specific standards of facilities are expected to meet when it comes to urgent and preventive care. And these are outlined by the National Commission on Correctional Health Care. And they include prompt assessment for and treatment of physical and mental health issues. 
However, accreditation by this group is not mandatory, and many facilities do not come close to meeting even minimal standards. A 2002 study showed that only about half of facilities had in-house mental health professionals. Many didn't screen for substance use at all, and only two-thirds provided on-site substance abuse services, which was often provided by individuals not trained in this specific area. Most facilities fail completely at educating youth on suicide prevention. Less than a quarter of juvenile detention facilities screen all youth for sexually transmitted infection. And one of the most concerning issues surrounding access is the fact that federal law prohibits Medicaid and CHIP funds from covering inmates. What this means is that all Medicaid and CHIP patients lose their coverage while incarcerated, and many of them have no insurance upon release. This takes an already vulnerable population and provides yet another disadvantage. Likely partially as a result of loss of coverage, a 2017 study in pediatrics revealed that these youth have higher rates of ER utilization and hospitalization upon release. All of these aspects contribute to worse outcomes for these individuals with a fourfold higher mortality rate than the general population. Incarceration also puts these youth at higher rates for new injury and illness. These youth have high rates of traumatic injury as well as infectious disease such as tuberculosis and STDs. And high-risk behaviors are common amongst incarcerated youth as well. As you can see in this graph, graph incarcerated youth shown here in the blue bars on the left have dramatically higher rates of chlamydia infection, teen parenthood, lifetime alcohol, and drug use when compared to the general population. As we've seen in the last slide, incarceration puts youth in a position to learn new negative behaviors. This graph reveals that one of the strongest predictors of youth incarceration is prior commitment, even when compared to other things like carrying a weapon, membership in a gang, or poor parental relationship. So why is this? We do know that adolescents are especially vulnerable to peer influence. And studies seem to suggest that just being around other incarcerated youth puts children at high risk for reoffending. Researchers at the Oregon Social Learning Center found that placing incarcerated youth together for treatment is associated with higher recidivism rates and poorer outcomes than those not grouped together for treatment. This phenomenon is called peer deviancy training, and the study reported statistically significantly higher levels of substance abuse, school difficulties, delinquency, violence, and adjustment difficulties even into adulthood for those youth treated in a peer group setting. This graph further drives home the fact that incarcerating youth does not make communities safer. During the first part of the 1990s, as juvenile arrests rose, the use of detention rose even faster. By the middle of the 1990s, as juvenile arrests began to drop, seen by the light blue line, the use of detention, seen here in dark blue, continued to rise. In other words, while there may be some youth who need to be detained to protect themselves or the public, there is very little observed relationship between the increased use of detention and crime. Another important point about so-called delinquent youth is that they may not always be that way. This graph shows the natural history of crime rates by age. As you can see, crime peaks in middle adolescence and tapers off by adulthood. This correlates with what we know about adolescent brain development, which is that the prefrontal cortex doesn't fully mature until the mid-20s. Dr. Del Delbert Elliott, head of the Center for the Study of the Prevention of Violence, has shown that as many as a third of young people will engage in delinquent behavior before they grow up, but will naturally age out of this behavior as they get older. And in fact, Carnegie Mellon researchers have shown that incarcerating kids may actually interrupt and delay the normal pattern of aging out of delinquent behavior, since detention disrupts their natural engagement with families, school, and work. Let's now shift in a more positive direction. This is a quote from the Juvenile Justice Reform Act. Helping children reject a life of crime has long been a national priority. It requires more than an adjudication system and a detention facility. It requires a collaborative effort among parents, teachers, and community members to prevent criminal behavior and support children who have engaged in illegal activity. All in all, there are some positives happening in the world of juvenile justice. We know that incarceration and arrest rates are decreasing. More and more programs are coming to light about that focus on diversion and rehabilitation, and legislation supporting reform has come into play. This graph shows the dramatic decline in numbers incarcerated up to 2015. Arrest rates have declined as well. 
and the number of youth held as adults in state prisons has declined 75% between 2000 and 2016. So why use diversion instead of incarceration? We know that it has lower rates of recidivism and higher effectiveness, as well as decreased costs. It allows for the avoidance of negative influence and the trauma of confinement, keeps kids closer to home, and is more developmentally appropriate. And we've now learned that many of these kids will likely age out of their delinquent behavior. On the next few slides, we'll discuss initiatives that are successfully using diversion tactics. <clears throat> One of these promising efforts is the Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative. This is a public-private partnership nationwide with pioneering jurisdictions that include Santa Cruz County, California, Multnomah County in Oregon, and Cook County, Illinois. The initiative emphasizes intergovernmental collaboration, reliance on evidence, alternatives to confinement, expedited case processing, strategies to reduce racial disparities, and improvement in conditions, and it's working. Participating sites have reduced their average daily population in detention by 44% since launching their efforts. And you can see these positive results in these ta this table here. This is pre-Juvenile Detention Alternatives Initiative. Also promising is that these sites have reduced the number of youth in color of youth of color in detention by 40%. And what's more, in the counties implementing these initiatives, juvenile crime rates have fallen as much as or more than national decreases in juvenile crime. These decreased rates have been maintained over the past 15 years. Another successful program is the Detention Diversion Advocacy Program. This was developed in 1993, initially in San Francisco, as an effort to reduce unnecessary detention, lengths of stay, and to organize community efforts for youth at risk. This table shows just how successful the program has been. Youth in the DDAP are represented in blue on the left and are compared to those who are incarcerated in white. As you can see, the youth in the DDAP have half the recidivism rate of young people who remained in detention, and even less than half the rate of subsequent referrals into the system and violent crime offenses. Another important example of a program that works is Treatment Foster Care Oregon. This is an evidence-based alternative to incarceration in which families in the community are recruited, trained, and closely supervised as they provide treatment and intensive supervision. It works to help kids successfully live in a family setting and also works to help parents provide effective parenting. There's a strong emphasis on consistency, structure, access to positive influence peers, and school attendance. And it's working. A study on boys who participated showed fewer subsequent arrests, fewer incarcerated days, less self-reported drug use, and fewer violent offenses. This is a cost-effectiveness summary taken right from their website. They understand that the bottom line is what is important to many people. I've highlighted the section over here in the red box that indicates a 70% chance that the program will produce benefits greater than costs. And these all are just a few examples. There are programs in many other cities and states working to reduce incarceration rates and keep kids moving in a positive direction. Promising legislation has come to light as well in the wake of all the current concerns about the justice system. The Juvenile Justice Reform Act is a piece of bipartisan legislation introduced by Representative Jason Lewis, who's a Republican from Minnesota, and Bobby Scott, who's a Democrat from Virginia, in 2017. It provides increased support for services to help avoid incarceration for youth, a focus on evidence-based strategies, and increased accountability and oversight to deliver positive outcomes for kids and protect taxpayers. It's currently on the calendar in the Senate as of February 2018. And what about New Hampshire? So our state has had some backward steps. For example, legislation was introduced in 2013 in New Hampshire proposing to limit the use of isolation in juvenile facilities but it did not pass. There have also been some positive strides in New Hampshire as well. In 2014, reforms were enacted to more effectively rehabilitate young offenders and preserve their rights. For example, requiring the court to determine that a minor is knowingly and intentionally waiving counsel and the use of competency assessments. And that same year, Maggie Hassan championed raising the age at which a youth can be tried as an adult to 18. In 2016, the New Hampshire legislature passed a House bill which allowed for the development of a comprehensive substance use disorder treatment program at the Sununu Youth Services Center. The initial 16 beds are set to open this coming July. 
In 2017, legislation passed which mandated that the Sununu Youth Services Center reduce its number of beds to emphasize detaining only youth who truly pose a risk to the public and to focus those funds on community-based treatment. So let's talk about what we've learned so far. We know that juvenile incarceration is inherently flawed and in many instances dangerous. We know that concerning disparities exist and need to be further examined, and we know that diversion works. Let's look forward a little bit. So what can we do on the whole and as pediatricians? I'll tell you. So as a society, we need to work to end stigmas for our marginalized populations. Decreasing racism and homophobia starts in our homes and in our schools. We need to stop seeing these children as others and start viewing them as they are, children in need of help. Multiple states have modeled success with the individual programs focusing on diversion. This tactic has proven to work time and time again, but cannot be successful without community engagement. We also need to work to keep kids closer to home and involved in their own communities. And as a legal process, we need to work to reduce incarceration for nonviolent crimes, as well as to decrease the use of solitary confinement and restraints. And we need to decrease the number of youth being held and tried as adults. So now talking a little bit about our role as pediatricians. Screening and referral for high-risk patients before they ever enter into the system is extremely important. These are the patients that we see in every aspect of pediatrics. The kids who come into the emergency department after an assault, the drug overdoses and traumatic brain injuries in the PICU, the school dropouts, and those who screen for substance use intervention in the clinic. We have a duty to help make steps towards connecting these patients and their families with community services. It's our responsibility to screen for adverse childhood experiences, offering interventions such as parenting support and providing referrals to mental health and social service providers to reduce downstream incarceration risks. We can also work to monitor and encourage educational attainment for our patients, which is a key protective factor for juvenile offending. So often it is difficult to know where or how to refer. It's our job to engage our care managers and our social workers to form comprehensive plans and we should be educating ourselves about community programs. Not only is prevention important, but our role as pediatricians is just as vital for children who have been or are currently a part of the juvenile justice system. We need to remember the tremendous barriers these children face, whether or not they are health-related, educational, or economic. And when it comes to legislation, we all emphasize the use of evidence-based medicine. Diversion programs and reduced incarceration rates have strong evidence supporting their use. We can work as pediatricians to promote legislation that decreases rates of incarceration and increases diversion programs. We can lobby for increased funding for the mental and physical health care needs of incarcerated youth. And we can support the requirements of the National Commission on Correctional Health Care to work toward more uniform physical and mental health standards in detention facilities. And finally, as I'm sure you'll agree, I became a pediatrician because advocating for my patients is extremely important to me. We need to view all these youth as our patients. We wouldn't stand idly by and allow one of our patients to be traumatized and abused, so there's no excuse not to act on behalf of the children in the system. We can work to advocate for strength-based approaches to treatment of these youth and focus on coping strategies and positive reinforcement. We can use our practices to create partnerships with detention centers to create medical homes for these individuals to ease the medical transition upon release. We can advocate for the continuation of Medicaid and CHIP for incarcerated youth. And finally, we can work to train residents to better understand the juvenile justice system and its pitfalls. I'm going to finish with a quote by Richard Ross, who took all the photos that you saw in this presentation. He says, the first step is to think about it. The next part is to think that you're not impotent to change the system and to make demands on people that administer taxes and funds. Ask about the treatment of these kids and ask why it's that way. Thanks, guys. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> ways to work against um, uh, hidden biases because I'm, I'm assuming that all these people in New Hampshire are locking up the five black people that we have are saying it's not because they're black. 
So I'm wondering if there's anything specifically, like screens, they can't see the patient's color, or some sort of, is there anything that people have posited to help work against this bias? That's a great question and a great suggestion. I mean, as far as I know, no. Um, New Hampshire doesn't, we're not exactly leading the way when it comes to reform, I would say, in this country. So um, we'd have to look to states like Oregon or Washington um, or really any other state um, to see if, if they're doing similar things. But it's, it's hard because a lot of this data, there's not a lot of studies that are actively ongoing. And even a lot of this survey data is from like 2012, 2013. So it's probably, honestly, at this point, maybe a little bit outdated. Um, so that was something that I found to be really concerning, that we don't have a lot of information, so it's hard to know. Um, but all in all, I think you know, the programs that are using diversion are doing, doing that in a way that they're focusing on all youth. But um, I don't know about specific, specific programs. Um, I am actually not speaking for myself. I'm speaking for Dr. White. Congratulates <laughs> you on your grand rounds. <laughs> Thanks, Stephanie. <laughs> And it follows what um, Shalene asked about. And that goes along with implicit bias and unconscious bias that predispose youth of color mm -hmm. to high rates of arrest um, and incarceration. And it starts before they even get into the system. Mm -hmm. So ed.gov has a civil rights data collection website that gives demographic information for school districts across the country. Hanover's information hasn't been updated since 2011. However, in 2011, despite black and Hispanic students only compromising 3% of the student body, they make up over 50% of the suspensions. Lebanon has been updated last in 2015, but they did not report any information on in-school um, suspensions. She says that as pediatricians, we have to think about how labels apply to our patients, which usually starts prior to incarceration or involvement in the juvenile justice system, but starts early in education. And there are numerous studies, going to Shalene's point, um, that teachers would all benefit from unconscious bias training as minority students are monitored differently than their majority peers. However, how do we advocate for things that we do not have data on? We hear the stories of an N of 1 or a case report, but presentation, and she says to you, presentations like this are important to ground these experiences in the overall narrative of the country. And she forwarded a, a, a snapshot for me that I can forward um, with that EDD website. So I guess a comment on what. Thanks, Stephanie. Has <laughs> I think it was Comp yes, I, yeah. I think a thank you is appropriate. <laughs> thank you for that terrific talk. Thanks. I love I'm very depressed at the, I know. <laughs> the information you gave us. So one thing that I'm curious about is that you referred several times to the negative aspect mm -hmm. of removing the children that are far from home and, and this and that, separating from families. But isn't the home or the family in many cases a, a great have a great deal to do with the source of the problem? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And I think... That's why the um, treatment foster care organ is so fascinating to me because they're taking kids and w what I, I didn't get to give like the full detail of that um, program because it would take forever. But um, what they do is they have these kids essentially live in these um, specialized homes for nine months and they're basically learning how to be a part of a family before they even go back to their own families. Um, and so... I think doing something like that that's more intermediate would be much more successful. Um, and obviously you've got kids that are dangerous and are a danger to themselves or the public. And in that case, sometimes um, incarceration is beneficial. Like we saw um, the child who was charged with homicide as an adult who ended up in the um, juvenile system. He was incredibly successful um, with the structure. So I think that there are probably instances where being out of the home is is a better bet. But for so many of these kids, if they're already traumatized, being in a system where um, they're more likely to be sexually abused, physically abused, um, can just make things worse. So I think it's hard because there are individual success stories, but when you look at the numbers on the whole, um, they're super concerning, if that makes any sense. So from what I read, there were sort of individual um, programs in certain specific schools, but there haven't really been programs that have been 
implemented nationwide or even statewide. Um, but I agree, I think that's a good place to sort of start, even like Stephanie was saying, working on implicit bias and then um, working on, you know, we all know that out of school suspensions for kids who are already struggling are not usually very helpful. Um, and even in school suspensions, depending on what kind of help they're getting, um, isn't the, for the best. So um, I, w I wasn't able to find anything on broader kind of programs, which I think would be a great place for intervention. Um, I want to thank you. I, I am not depressed, actually. Because <laughs> you do this every day. <laughs> I, I see so much potential for us to do, to make such changes. And I'm talking about way, 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 way earlier than when mm -hmm. somebody's being suspended in school. I think that we as a pediatric, especially in the outpatient scene, as a pediatric practice, we have incredible potential to screen for adverse childhood experiences, to really look at our families at risk. How many times have we said to one another, that kid's going to be in an orange jumpsuit one day? That may be black humor, but I think we're actually talking about what we are talking about, and we need to think about that in terms of making referrals to me and Ellen, actually connecting that we can make changes for these families, and that's where I truly believe this is going to disappear. But thank you very, very much. So one of the things, just sort of, um, sort of touched on some of the mental health issues. Mm -hmm. It's a risk factor. It causes more mental health issues. What we know, sort of, in the adult population, is that like our um, justice system <laughs> is the largest treater of mental health, right? Like they're the biggest providers. But how, did you run across anything about sort of um, bolstering our mental health systems? Because we, we know we don't have enough resources yeah. on the pediatric side as well. But is that an opportunity <clears throat> for um, intervening? earlier as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the data is very similar in kids, <clears throat> excuse me, where oftentimes um, communities are sort of at a loss for what to do with a kid who's so severely mentally ill that they end up in the juvenile justice system, which is just wrong. And um, oftentimes they end up in a program that doesn't have the right resources for them. So um, absolutely. I think, you know, now that kids have more rights when it comes to trial and stuff like that, and sometimes psychiatric hospitalization is deemed necessary, um, you know, using those um, resources is really helpful. Um, it's so hard, though, when you see, I can think of, I was just in the ER the other night, and we had a patient come in who, she's actively using drugs all the time, she's got a really difficult chronic medical history, but she's not, <clears throat> she wasn't acutely determined to be a risk to herself or to somebody else, even though the dad was like, I can't bring her home, she's going to die of a drug overdose, um, and there was just nothing we could do for her. So that tied in with all of her mental health issues. If we had had a place to send her, like this poor girl is probably going to, like, she won't see her 25th birthday. Um, so, I, yeah, I totally agree. I think using those types of resources and doing them earlier um, would be really helpful. Following up on that, I think that um, it would be so helpful if we had something like an intensive outpatient program. Mm -hmm. um, I've looked into this, and you know, there are a couple on the seacoast, and um, have sent kids that way, um, but we just really don't have anything like that locally. Yeah. Um, okay. Hopefully, everyone doesn't go home depressed. I know. Are... Things will get better, I swear. <laughs> suggest a Hillary and, um, and get a little sunshine to also boost your spirits. <laughs>